The Manifesto Read. The Manifestos Analyzed by the Experts. So we're moving the pace. We're on to health and social care now, OJ. Yeah, and I think this will be really exciting because I actually think that everyone kind of has an idea about the NHS. But when it comes to spending, funding, where it goes, it's really good to hear from the experts in this area. Definitely. Hi, I'm Danielle Solomon. I'm a public health doctor working at the UCL Institute for Global Health as a Welcome Clinical PhD Fellow. Hi, I'm Daniel Malin. I am a manager in the NHS running a clinical network for South London and I was a former policy advisor in the Department of Health and Social Care. Hi, I'm Janita Halsey. I'm a youth manager for a youth and community charity in Hackney. Hello, I am Uwa Adediji. I am a barrister working with Thurrock Borough Council as an interim manager. For children's services. Hi there, uh, I'm Kalechi Esnew, I'm a senior clinical fellow in spinal surgery at Guy's and St Thomas's Hospital and I was a uh, research fellow both at um, Oxford University and the LSE where I did my master's in health economics management and policy. Thanks for having me. Hello, my name is Zainab Asanramu. I am the former parliamentary researcher for a Labour, former Labour member of parliament. Okay, so to summarise what's happening in terms of funding with the three manifestos, I think we have to think about the difference between a cash injection mainly to deal with NHS day-to-day funding and an actual increase in the annual budget of the health and social care, the the Department for Health and Social Care. And also there are other areas of spending that don't come under the NHS, so public health is one, and capital spending, so things like buildings are another. So just to quickly summarise what the three parties are saying that they're going to do, the Conservatives have said that they're going to give a cash injection to the NHS of £34 billion between now and 2023-24. The Labour Party have said that they are going to give a cash injection of £40 billion, so that's for day-to-day spending, and increase the health and social care budget by 4.3% annually. The Liberal Democrats have said that they are going to increase income tax by 1p for everyone and that's going to be used to create a £7 billion a year increase in the health and social care budget over the next few years with the aim to creating a health and social care tax that would be I suppose marked on people's pay slips etc and so people would know exactly what was being spent on health and social care and the big thing there is that they want to bring together the health and social care budgets and then separately they all have different pledges for capital spending so the Conservatives have said that they're going to put £2.7 billion towards building six new hospitals and then another 100 million seed funding for another 34 hospitals to be proposed in the future. Uh, The Labour Party are going to put 15 billion into capital investment in general, so building new NHS buildings, and the Liberal Democrats have pledged a cash injection of 10 billion. So that's a kind of a rough summary of the money side of things. I think to give my opinion in the first instance, It surprises me that there isn't anything in the Conservative manifesto about increasing budgets, given that healthcare spending tends to increase year on year because demand goes up and inflation, etc, etc. As is well known, I think, under the last Conservative government, uh, budgets have been slashed quite considerably. There have been quite considerable cuts, meaning that the increase year on year has been significantly smaller than it has been previously for quite some time. So I think there's an indication there that they're not really aiming to change a huge amount in terms of funding. On the opposite end of the spectrum, you have Labour who are 
in the rest of their manifesto have said that they're going to make changes to taxation. And clearly what they're saying is that a large amount of that is going to, to go into increasing uh, NHS and social care budgets quite significantly. The Liberal Democrats, I think it's a very interesting idea to put together the health and social care budgets. Health and social care aren't separate entities. They're treated as such, but it's very artificial. And often you get the priorities of departments of health and departments of social care, both nationally and locally, can seem as though they're competing purely because the budgets are separate. So I think it's an interesting idea to put that that budget together and have them work more simultaneously. I mean, the other great thing about that with the kind of, you know, seeing it on your pay slips almost and seeing where that goes, it takes away the, the disconnect, which I think often happens at the moment where, you know, people think, where's my tax money going? And having that, you know, so you can see the exact line in your pay slip and you can see what that's going towards, hopefully will reduce the, the reluctance, I guess, for some people to, to put back into the system. I don't know what you think about that. Well, it would only go on PYAE. So it's only people that are salaried. So if you have a job and you get a salary check, if you're a self-employed person, you can already, when you do your self-employed form, go, where does my tax go? And there's a little diagram and it does a little percentage. There is bits that happen there. And I suppose that's good. And I suppose what's really interesting about the Lib Dems is by stating where they're going to put the money and how you can kind of track back. I think there was a criticism that what happens if income tax revenues go down so people pay less income tax than they were doing before so less people were employed and will that raise seven billion and what they said is the seven billion would be ring fence but what if there's an under in investment for income tax there was a lot of criticism from other parties saying well that could mean that the nhs gets less money and i think what the lib dems have said is actually that's the the baseline of ring fencing so if it does if income tax doesn't do it we'll generate it from other means and that's a very interesting point i think the other big thing for the lib dems is attempt to like depoliticise budgeting in the NHS with the setting up of kind of an office of budgetary responsibility specifically for health and care which is a, a it's a new move and it, if you're a sad policy person like me does make a real difference as to how we can use it and depoliticise this for the future and that is an interesting idea and sometimes what we see with the Lib Dems is they put an, out, an idea out in a manifesto and in about probably at this rate three elections time everyone else kind of goes oh that's a bog standard thing and it happens so I think hopefully that is a really interesting policy idea on the money side. One small thing about that that you could argue from the Lib Dems especially if you're just this is being put on PAYE rather than on you know corporation tax or dividends or whatever else you can argue it's slightly regressive right so if it's hitting those people only who are on PAYE who don't tend to be. So everyone will pay income tax it's just how do you show that on a wage slip with someone that doesn't have a wage slip because they're self-employed is a question. What I mean is though it's not being charged on for example if you're making money through dividends or through property uh, you know profits or whatever else and for me if you look at the labor and where they're going to fund their resources they would say the lib dems is hurting some people that probably can't afford it the least or you could say this this is a national health service and to raise capital everyone will pay equally because it gives equal treatment based on need so everyone puts one p up even if you're on basic even higher everyone puts one p on and then we're all contributing to what is a national hazard that's if whether you think it's regressive or not but it is on everyone's income tax so everyone is contributing would be their argument. So what we're going to talk about now is what is their plan for reforming the NHS, if any, across the three main parties. And so the Conservatives are carrying on what they've been doing in government. So in January, the NHS published the NHS long-term plan, which is out a kind of string of new objectives and seeing us moving away from some of the kind of competition ethos that was brought in by what is the Health and Social Care Act 2012, which we're going to come on to in a second in Labour. And I suppose what's really interesting for me, being a complete policy geek, is the change of language in the manifesto commitment. It goes from being the NHS long-term plan, which is how it was published 
published in January to our NHS long-term plan. It seems really different to me who talked about it for an entire year before it was published and then like the entire year afterwards and now defines what my life is. But in terms of who owns that and who's now responsible, the Conservatives are saying it's ours, not the NHS, and that is important for what happens next. So it's not fundamental change. What they're saying is there was an accompanying raft of legislative proposals by the NHS and they're going to adopt those as government proposals and legislate for them within three months. Having worked on two acts of parliament while in the civil service, three months is highly ambitious. So we'll put that off. And then for Labour, they want to repeal the Health and Social Care Act, which was brought in in 2012. It was brought in to much opposition by many health groups and organisations. It was the brainchild of Andrew Lansley, who was health secretary, right up until its introduction. And then Jeremy Hunt took over. Labour would like to repeal that. And simply put, that means kind of the competition element of the NHS, where providers are competing for services from different clinical commissioning groups. And NHS England, as a specialist commissioner, will kind of end. Uh, It kind of already has ended in practice. Competition hasn't really worked. It will also kind of... Controversial. Not controversial. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm going to agree with not controversial. Not controversial. We can discuss that in a second. We can discuss that in a second. And then it kind of makes a move towards more integrated care around integrating health and social care and health and public health again. They haven't quite deemed what word they want to use from the manifestos. They they refuse to say the word integrated care system, which is the current model for integration. Be interesting to see if they re-bring up what was a really weird idea called NHS Excellence from a few years ago, which was like mind-boggling. And now we have NHSX, which is the digital and AI wing of NHS. I don't know if there can be that many new bodies, but that's fine. And then the Lib Dems, which I suppose I'm going to politely call the middle ground, say we support the changes that the NHS published in January and want to achieve. So they take the Conservative commitment, but without these three-month deadline, and they move forward to say that they would like to do what I will explain in a second. Single place-based budgets for health and social care and new um, emerging governance structures between local authority and NHS bodies. Now, for me, I was like, wow, what a great idea. It's like I've been saying that for ages and no one listened to me. And one of the big criticisms of the NHS long-term plan is it focused only on the NHS and didn't talk about how the NHS had to work better with partners. So a lot of the criticism that it came into from the local government association is that local government was that big kind of un spoken thing that had such a huge effect from social care to public health to children's services that wasn't addressed in the long-term plan and what the Lib Dems are saying is they want to create new ways of doing that and I suppose that's in a nutshell what's going to happen so if you want very quick reform for conservatives but it's not going to be wide-reaching if you want rapid overturning of what the current system is and the repealing of the 2012 Act vote Labour and if you want reform but not very radical vote Lib Dem. I mean, I would say that the interesting thing about that is that that's a good way of summing up the health manifestos in general. (laughs) The the Conservatives (laughs) seem to be basically tinkering around the edges. They're basically, if you're reading the Conservative Health Manifesto and you're nodding along with it, then you believe that the NHS and the health service and the social care are largely fine and just need some tinkering around the edges. Whereas Labour is the absolute opposite extreme and wants to do complete reform on everything. And I think it's interesting. I I don't know if there's been an election before where it's been so stark that you have these three positions that are very much kind of, there's a lot going on about ideology. And I think that when you look at the reform bits of the the manifestos, that that says it most strongly, like basically, do you believe that there's a problem or not? That is what I'm concerned about. And that's why I need the experts to assist. How realistic is that? So you saying, if you want a drastic change, go Labour. If you don't want things to stay the same, go Conservative. Having read the manifestos, how likely are these things they're proposing likely to happen? 
Silence. And that, and and that says, and that says so concern. much. I was going to say something so really scathing. We will have another podcast if <laughs> the Conservatives have re-elected and by March 2020, we have an NHS long-term plan legislation bill that has gone through both Houses of Parliament and has been given royal assent because... My good God, I know the people that have to work on that and I will just be sending them like food because they'll never be able to leave their desk. <laughs> it's too ambitious. The parliamentary researcher is nodding her head saying, <laughs> I've worked through with members of parliament, acts going through and there is no way. And I know I've said it's tinkering around the edges. The proposal published, consultation response hasn't come out, talks about ending tendering for NHS contracts. It talks about kind of joint pooled budgets between integrated care system. It talks about the creation of new NHS trusts. It talks about changing procurement rules and tariffs. Like, you have to get a high level of geekery, which I have only just reached, to really understand what that is, and then to work out how it's going to change. And I do not see it getting through Parliament in anywhere near three months. Just one last thing, just quickly. In terms of feasibility, I agree. I think that pretty much everything that's being proposed is ambitious, from all parties in different ways. But everyone said that the Health and Social Care Act 2012 probably was a bit too ambitious, and that's not me in any way supporting that bit of legislation, but they, they managed to do it. It's, it's different, but what I'm saying is that sometimes when it comes to the feasibility of a manifesto promise change can happen and i think it you know it's whether or not you believe that the getting that changing all the way to a manifesto promise is the only me- measure of success or not but change can happen i was talking about my other geek career which is parliamentary conventions and constitution which is the the bit for me as an ex-civil servant having lived through the last election is that the civil servants now are squirreling away all these manifestos and working out what they have in their policy bank of things they could pull out to achieve them and on day one, whatever minister comes in or whatever coalition or whatever half, they will pick and choose what they think they're going to lose and go, look, this is what we can do quickly and this is what's long term. And that's great. And that's what manifesto's points are. But the other point is to say, when you go through parliament and people go, well, why are you doing this? You go, it was in my manifesto. So I have a, a commitment to the public to do it. And that becomes really important in our constitution when we look at the House of Lords, which is a huge unelected second chamber. And the reason why it's really important is it's full of experts, especially in health. And whoever gets elected will use this manifesto to tell the laws they cannot block it because it was in their manifesto. So there is a political undertone to all manifestos as to why things are in there and things aren't in there. And I would imagine some of the health stuff, which is a bit vague, will be used in those political wranglings for whoever is elected. I'm the parliamentary researcher that you was nodding <laughs> as you were talking about so the this procedures. Is this is Zainab. And I just wanted to say that any party that kind of promises to do any type of reform within three months and put, push through legislation through both houses, it's just so unrealistic. It's a joke. But also Brexit is going to dominate in January and February and March. <laughs> it's going to dominate. And so I've been in the Houses of Parliament where they've had to literally say, we cannot debate this because X, Y and Z or no, OK, not even X, Y and Z because of Brexit. So it's highly unlikely and I think they're just trying to win back well I think it's a conservative party that said that so it's about winning back support for something that they've been blamed for I guess I'm Kalechi uh, Kalechi Esnu as mentioned before I'm so glad we've just mentioned Brexit because actually that actually was one of my, my main points about this whole thing that we're reading about you know health and social care not a single manifesto mentioned Brexit which of course from the point of view of everything financing you know medication deals trade deals and so on and so forth you can say what you like about you know raising um, the amount we're going to 
spend on X, Y, and Z. But at the end of the day, it completely depends on, on the withdrawal agreement, which is incredibly sad to say, and I feel incredibly boring saying that, but it's just the truth. So that kind of underpins everything else we say. Saying that, I will still talk about drug pricing uh, and trade deals about drugs, which actually is very much linked with Brexit as well. So I saw something very interesting in the Labour manifesto where they actually talked about establishing a generic drug company. Now, it's very interesting. The way the NHS currently works is that international drug companies hate the UK and NICE specifically because we get very, very good deals compared to a lot of other countries in terms of how much we pay per tablet or per week of treatment or whatever that may be. That's especially the case for newer biological medications, which are incredibly expensive. So think about, you know, medications, for example, for cystic fibrosis, a very, very famous one called Orcambi, which was mentioned in the Labour Manifesto, which was incredibly expensive. And essentially, patients were reported to be being held to ransom by corporations charging a lot of money for this drug. Now, you can look at this one of two ways. With my very, very left-leaning friends, they say that these corporations are awful and are taking, you know, price gouging and so on and so forth. My more uh, rightward-leaning friends would say, of course, it's very expensive to develop these drugs. You know, they need they R&D costs are, are incredible. So, you know, some sort of pricing is, is, is necessary. I'll leave that up to you to a certain extent. Essentially, what Labour wants to do is establish a generic drug company, uh, which would mean that, as they've said, they would, if fair prices were rejected for patented drugs, they would essentially issue compulsory licenses and research exemptions, which would mean that they would be able to secure access to generic drugs or generic versions of the drugs. Now, the first thing I thought when I read that was, wow, because what you're essentially saying is that as the UK, bearing in mind we're now leaving the biggest trade organisation that would have given us some, you know, group power on this sort of purchasing, as the UK with 70 million users, we're going to take on, you know, whoever that is, Glaxo, Roche, whoever else, and say we're going to, you know, get round your 10, 20, 30 year patent and 50 billion of research funding and we're going to go alone. I'd love to see what happens, but apparently that's going to happen and that's in the Labour Manifesto. It's very, very interesting. They've also mentioned that they're going to play an active role in the medical innovation model. So essentially, I think what this means is trying to ensure that they incentivize areas of greatest need, greatest health need. I think this is a really, really good aim they've got, which essentially is meaning that they're going to try and target resources towards the health needs that affect the population the most. I guess the question for me would be, you know, who decides that? Is that going to be clinicians? Is that going to be managers? Is that going to be politicians? Because obviously, you know, when you've got Mrs. X, you know, 75-year-old lady who's paid her taxes all her life and is a conservative voter versus, you know, someone who's a lot younger living in a city who may not be, how does that get decided when it's a vote winner or a vote loser? Both sides have said the NHS will be completely outside of future trade deals. But again, how can they say that? You've got Jeremy Corbyn who's arguing for Brexit neutrality. So he's not saying which way he wants to go. You've got the Conservative Party also obviously saying Brexit means Brexit. But if Brexit means Brexit, what does that mean for our relationship with the rest of the world? And how can you say that anything is going to be off the table in a future trade deal when you've got no idea what your position is going to be. So I guess I'm sounding very boring mentioning Brexit at all, but this comes to the crux of everything to do with health, that, you know, these things are not the UK on on their own. It's not, you know, the UK cannot be an island, though I realise it is. Uh, Northern Ireland. Indeed, that's a whole, we're not even getting on to that. Just to be clear, we're not an island. It's the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Indeed, yeah. If all people understood about Northern Ireland, we wouldn't be in the mess. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed. Pedantry is not dead, which is good to see. But um, as I said, you know, the problem here is going to be that we're acting like we've got so much individual power on trade deals or whatever else but we can't make any of these assertions you know without knowing 
what the withdrawal agreement would be. I have to agree with that. I think that when it comes to medicines in particular, ultimately the regulatory system that we're going to be part of once we leave the EU, if we leave the EU. If we leave the EU. Well, we did, he didn't mention the Lib Dem position on Brexit. So for neutrality, yes, the Lib Dem wants to remain. Exactly. So yeah, if we leave the EU is a whole new world. So I agree. It's it's very, very difficult to know whether or not like, exactly what is feasible because we have no idea what the circumstances are going to be. So I think you're completely right. And I think it is difficult if priorities are going to be chosen politically because every one. I think um, the Conservatives have said in their manifesto specifically they're going to have a plan about cancer drugs and things like that. There are certain, no one's really talking about non-communicable diseases. No one's talking about blood pressure or heart disease or diabetes, really. Yeah, there's random references to kind of and cardiovascular diseases and th- there's nothing in there and we'll get on to prevention in a second exactly. but that is true like it, it, it's it's cancer or nothing as a disease in manifestos it seems like apart from the Lib Dems who go into a lot of detail about lots of other ra- things as well although I did notice the Conservatives talking quite a lot about gambling addiction everyone's talking about gambling so gambling is weirdly something that seems to unite everyone in these manifestos gambling yeah, is yeah one bad. of the few things that comes up in all <laughs> everyone wants Why? gambling reformed I would note that Why? some parties that are currently in government block some re- very wide-reaching gambling reforms and it led which would have changed things quite significantly yeah. yeah and led to a minister resigning tracy crouch there has been attempts to reform gambling before it's one of the weird cross-party issues because john ashworth has talked quite publicly about having an alcoholic father who gambled a lot and there was quite a lot of cross-party consensus with it and so that's if you're against gambling addiction it doesn't matter who you vote for because there's <laughs> roughly reform it's just who do you believe is going to get it done Uh, I'm Danielle Solomon. I'm going to talk a little bit about what the parties have said about prevention and public health, which is a topic very close to my heart. So just as a background, public health is uh, funded separately outside of the NHS. It has its own set of funding for complex reasons. And public health goes beyond the NHS, significantly beyond the NHS. A lot of things come into public health. So transport, education, housing. And so therefore, often it is the most political arm of health because it very much depends on what you believe ideologically as to whether or not how far you think the scope of public health is. And once again, as I think I said before about different parts of the manifesto, this is very, very clear when you look at the three manifestos on public health. So the Conservative Party said almost nothing about prevention. They want to create a long-term strategy to empower people with lifestyle-related conditions to live healthier lives. And they said a few things about screening and vaccination, and that's about it. Labour talked about a £1 billion increase in spending on public health services. Public health services recently had a massive funding cut, but this would go beyond the cuts that they recently received and have said various things about preventing childhood obesity and uh, alcohol pricing. And as we said, treating gambling and drug addiction as healthcare rather than uh, criminal problems. And then Liberal Democrats want to reverse the funding cuts that have been within public health. And both the Labour and the Lib Dems have talked about uh, a health in all policies approach, which comes from the World Health Organization. And the idea is that every single policy in all areas, you have to look at what the health impact would be. So, you know, if you're going to have a transport policy, does it allow people to walk? Does it cater for people with disabilities, etc, etc? You know, housing, welfare, all of those sorts of things, you have to think about whether or not they're making people more or less healthy, which is something I was very impressed by in both the Labour and Lib Dem manifestos. It's one of those things that is often not talked about, the health impact of um, things outside of healthcare. And yet those are the things that have the largest impact often on health 
prevention. So the fact that Labour and the Lib Dems are talking about this is a real possibility. And it's something that is long overdue, I think. If we're going to talk about health, then why do we not have health experts in basically every department? And the one thing that I noticed is that the only party to talk about health inequality was Labour, in abstract terms. To be fair to the Lib Dems, they do talk about health inequalities. They've just branded it a bit differently to what health inequalities people that work in it would say that's what we mean. But they do, I, I, I don't think we can say they don't talk about it. They talk about a lot of things around well-being and around prevention, around a new childhood obesity policy, around an extension to the soft drinks industry level. That is all about tackling health inequalities as well. Okay, that's true. That is true. But the one thing I would say is that health inequality is one of those bits of health that is reasonably unnecessarily controversial. And so I think actively stating that we do have health, like sweeping health inequality in this country in a manifesto was nice to see, even though I, I, I do agree that there are Lib Dem policies that are tackling health, aiming to tackle health inequality, but to specifically say we aim to tackle health inequality, I was impressed by that. And just as a, again, because this is this is an area I like to bang a drum on, just to like, for anyone who doesn't really know about what kind of health inequality we're talking about, the life expectancy gap between the most deprived and the least deprived areas in this country is nine years for men and seven years for women. We're talking massive inequalities in terms of healthcare outcomes in the UK, which is why it's interesting that the Conservatives uh, in their manifesto have said specifically, we want people who have lifestyle related illnesses to be able to manage them themselves. What they haven't really spoken about at all is what we call the structural determinants of health, poverty, unemployment, pollution, etc. All, all the things that go beyond people being able to quote unquote manage their own health. And those are the things that are really driving healthcare inequality. So again, I think that if you are someone who is voting on the basis of those kind of inequalities, then the Conservatives haven't really mentioned them at all and have kind of implied that they have a much more personal responsibility. I think their argument to an extent would be that you know, they could always go back to the economy, wouldn't they? So they would say that actually, if you haven't got any sort of cogent, I'm not saying that this is my this is my view necessarily, but their view probably would be that actually, if you haven't got a uh, a good strong economy, you're not going to have enough money to be able to to fund you know things like preventative care and so on and so forth, even if they haven't mentioned it. I guess that if that was if there was a Tory in the room, that might be there. How do you know account. there's not a Tory? In I the don't room. know. I we exactly. haven't checked, have we? <laughs> What Sounds like it's something to be ashamed of. <laughs> what, what I will say uh, is that what is really stark is that every political party on every debate you watch, on every news brief, on every leaflet that you get through, they will talk about the NHS and what they're doing to commit to the NHS. We started this podcast on a really important bit, which was about how much extra money the NHS was going to get. If you would like to not discuss that every time we have a general election and how much more money has to go in, the bit you need to invest in now is prevention because you're only going to stop the ever-increasing rise of ill health if you start preventing people becoming unhealthier. And we have had generations of people coming unhealthier and unhealthier and needing more complex treatment. And the great thing, and I have a I have a doctor in front of me, is we've got very good at treating unhealthy people and we've got very good at keeping people who 10, 15, 20 years ago would have died from things and get, keeping them alive. But what we've never done is been equally good of saying, well, in 15, 20 years time, you're going to have a heart attack, but we're going to intervene now and not when we need to bluff a little blue in your arteries to keep it going and I think that's the point we need to take so if you want to support the NHS if you want the NHS to be sustainable in the long term don't think about just all the money that has to go in now to keep it running think about all the things you have to do to make it sustainable by having a healthier population by fixing social care by doing all the other things around the edges and the other wider terminal house so look at what they say about housing look what they say about transport look what they say about education because all of those things have a huge amount of impact on health just as much as how many nurses and doctors we have hi 
it's Kalechi Esnu again. So I was going to uh, talk a little bit about the staffing commitments made in each one of the manifestos. So the Conservative Party probably going into the most detail about this, and we'll mention a little bit about that in a second, but essentially just to, to run some numbers by you. So they've talked about the commitment to provide 50,000 more nurses, additionally with nursing students receiving five to £8,000 in annual maintenance grant per year during their course to help with the cost of living, 6,000 more doctors in general practice, 6,000 more primary care professionals such as physiotherapists and pharmacists on top of an extra 7,500 extra associates and 20,000 primary care professionals. They've also mentioned something about an NHS fees which I think is quite interesting. So essentially, in short, this would be a fast-track entry with reduced visa fees for doctors who were suitably qualified in terms of speaking English uh, and had equivalent qualifications from other countries to come to the UK to be able to join the NHS uh, and work here. Right, so there's a lot that's been mentioned there. The first thing I would say that I noticed straight away when I read this was that from speaking to nursing colleagues, the actual removal of the uh, nursing maintenance grant was only taken away by the Conservative Party uh, in the last 10 years or so. And that actually has been probably the biggest thing that has impacted on the ability of you know nursing students who often are not from the most wealthy backgrounds necessarily to be able to train as nurses. So I thought it was a bit disingenuous to mention this um, in their manifesto whilst I thought the aspiration was extremely good. There's been a lot of argument and there are various fact-checking websites now on manifestos about the number of new doctors this was providing and the commitment to new doctors rather than just existing. Various fact-checking websites will say different things, but certainly there is a quite a strong argument that a number of these 6,000 more doctors in general practice are not actually new staff, but are actually included in previous commitments. That's another thing that I would I would say on that. Now, the NHS visa is incredibly interesting from a party that's talked about getting immigration down to the hundreds of thousands. While I realise, obviously, that more recently, Boris Johnson, the new Prime Minister, ha- has kind of moved away from that. But certainly amongst you know a lot of Conservative voters, there will be some sort of pushback, I would have thought, against the idea of unlimited access to the EU. UK if you've trained as a doctor or a nurse or whatever else from a different country. And so certainly I think that whilst this is in the manifesto, I'm not sure if this has been uh, cleared by the Tory grassroots, one could say. 50 million extra general practice appointments per year is something else that's mentioned uh, in the Conservative manifesto, uh, an increase of over 15%, which certainly is true. However, 50 million extra general practice appointments a year doesn't equate to 6,000 more GPs. What I would say about that is the argument there possibly is that you're going to increase uh, the efficiency of each GP in terms of number of hours they're working? No, I, I, I sorry to interrupt. Go I on. imagine that this is a kind of wonderfully crafted statement and I read it and thought it was a piece of genius mm. because they say 50 million more GP surgery appointments. They never said GP appointments. And so you will go to a GP surgery, maybe yours, maybe one that's down, further down the road and you'll have an appointment. And what this links to is what is called the primary care network contract, which not too technical, Daniel, Basically, we contract <laughs> GPs with contracts. And that's always been from a CCG to one general practice based on their list of patients and they got paid per patient list. What we've now done is get say, here's your primary contract and now here's a primary care network contract for you and maybe five, six, nine other GP practices to get. And if you do quite easy targets, but that's good because we want GPs to get more money in this contract, we'll get more funding and you can use that funding to hire nationally up to 20,000 more 
primary care staff. So this will be advanced practice nurses, this will be physical therapists, this will be paramedics and social prescribers. And the idea is this increased primary care workforce will be able to take work that GPs shouldn't be doing because you don't require a doctor or a general practitioner and streamline the primary care process. What I imagine they're saying is not GPs are going to be having to do more appointments. It'll be GPs are doing appointments which are GP focused and a specialist mental health nurse might be having a mental health clinic. A wound nurse might be having a wound clinic and therefore we're diversing diversifying our primary care workforce. That's not exactly new. The primary care contract has been published in draft and we already set up primary care networks. There's over 1,300 GPs. So it's not quite as revolutionary as they might want to make out. That's really, really useful. Thank you so much. It's very, very quickly to mention, and we're wrapping up quite soon. So both Labour and Conservatives have mentioned they're going to try and tackle the pension taper. Now, this is something that a lot of people may not know about outside of medicine, but certainly within medicine, within uh, you know practicing practitioners, is something that's incredibly uh, important. So essentially, what this means is that if you're a senior consultant, classically you know mid mid fifties and above, you'll have put a fair amount of money. I'm not going to mention the exact numbers because it differs between specialties, but a, a significant amount of money into your pension pot. What this means essentially is that you reach a pension cliff at some point where essentially by doing an extra session or an extra few sessions you can go over an amount which means that you're suddenly uh, lumped with a massive tax bill and here we're talking in the tens of thousands of pounds and what this has meant is a lot of uh, senior consultants have actually who previously would have been doing extra shifts uh, so extra theatre lists try and reduce waiting times are actually no longer doing them are taking early retirement or are doing other things such as advisory work or medical legal work instead of doing extra NHS sessions. Now, Conservatives obviously have been in power for a number of years. Their manifesto says they're going to tackle the taper. I guess my question would be, you know, why is it taking so long? Why is it taking uh, a manifesto to deal with something that quite clearly has already affected patient care over the last few years? In fairness, uh, Labour manifesto doesn't go into too much detail on it. They say they're going to tackle it also. So I, I suspect every uh, doctor, particularly those who are uh, more senior, will be looking at this quite keenly because the differences here could uh, make quite a significant difference to the amount of time that you as a potential user of the NHS have to wait for your appointment or wait for your operation. And me as a manager in the NHS, how readily my surgeons will do extra work on weekends or uh, when someone else is off sick. So it, it would really help me out. Here, here. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, my name's Janita Halsey. I'm a youth manager for a youth and community charity in Hackney. So I'm particularly looking at the manifestos for the youth sector commitments. So having a look at the Conservative Party manifesto, one of the areas they talk about is strengthening the NHS and social care. They say that they will treat mental health as the same urgency as physical health. And they will legislate so that patients suffering from mental health conditions, including anxiety or depression, have greater control over their treatment and receive the dignity and respect they deserve. In comparison to the Labour Party that talks about mental health and it says only one in four children and young people are able to receive help from mental health professionals. They're saying that £845 million will be a plan for healthy young minds will be more than double than the annual spending on children and adolescent mental health services. From my understanding, like the Conservative Party are saying how they will treat the urgency as the same as physical health, which I think is fantastic, but there's no mention of money. Um, There's no mention of if there's any money going to be put into that. My question is how? How is that going to happen? Because at the moment, like, I constantly am seeing the detriment of the young people's mental health. Like, it is rapidly decreasing. Like, there's so many young people suffering um, with mental health issues, which links really into, like, the education system at the moment, um, the pressures in schools. We work particularly with young people from the local area of Hackney, from lots of deprived backgrounds. And yeah, mental health is becoming more and more of a concern. Is that getting worse, do you think? 
hundred percent, hundred percent, and that comes from a multiple multitude of factors. I would say, in particularly, I don't know all across the country, but particularly in the area that I work in Hackney, um, the education system in particular being very much academies, privatised schools, essentially almost. The strictness of the schools, yeah, the way in which the schools are dealing with the young people is like there's no manoeuvre for young people. There's literally like a real struggle in terms of being able to express themselves. I've actually heard from GPs themselves that have particularly come on, like we get referrals from all different services, GPs included. And when they say, oh yeah, we've got a young person and coming in and they'll mention like particular schools and we've had parents taking young people to surgeries and then surgeries are going oh they're not from this school are they and it's all a lot linked to mental health issues and so on I'm really concerned about the mental health of young people in particular so yeah my concern is just like where's the funding coming from and are they planning to put some money into that so interesting because I completely from the outside when I read the newspaper and hear about you know x or y academy that's having you know a new drive for for more you know discipline or whatever else and I think that's I always you know think oh that must be great like the kids must be and actually what you're saying is that's not happening at all it's Um, What I was going to say, which links with the education, is that there's a lot of young people that are being excluded, that have a lot of mental health issues, and it's very much linked to then the criminal justice system from those that are excluded, because there's a massive, massive percentage of those young people that are ending up in exclusion provisions, like excluded provisions, APs, that are then involved in criminal activity. If you check the young people that are on those excluded provisions, a high proportion of them have got mental health issues. So I just wanted to quickly come in... um my name is Zainab. So one of the things that's quite interesting on the issue of mental health in children is that the Labour Party have committed to recruiting almost 3,500 qualified counsellors to guarantee that every child has access to school counsellors, which is so good. (laughs) It's brilliant. And then the Liberal Democrats have also spoken about the fact that they want to ensure that all teaching staff have the training to identify mental health issues and that schools provide immediate access for pupil support and counselling and that they would also focus on tackling bullying in schools. And the Conservative Party very very kind of wishy-washy in my opinion it's just the conservative party have committed to help teachers tackle bullying including homophobic bullying and that's kind of it it's daniel again if i haven't obviously excelled myself of just loving health policy a bit too much in my spare time i'm a school governor of a secondary school in south uh, east london and for the joy i chair the pupil discipline committee which is a committee that has to exclude children and i'm really lucky and i thank my like stars that we have the money and we're not a profit making academy we're an academy run by schools Uh, not by a business and that we have invested in training teachers with resilience training and we give that to all year sevens all year nines and then again at year 11 and you can see the pupils that get picked up really quickly and go through that process they have their life change around and I've had to exclude in the two years that I've now been doing that committee two pupils permanently and I can hand on heart say they had every opportunity to change and either they didn't engage with the process or their parents wouldn't help and it was mainly that that we couldn't justify they wouldn't be a danger to other pupils so we couldn't keep them but I know that I can sit on that committee very happily because our schools invest in that and it pains me when we look at the research we've done with Public Health England at how cost effective it is that not every school in the country has that and it is a huge difference. So Uwa and I are both barristers. I specialise in criminal defence. Uwa specialises in child protection from a family law perspective. And one of the things that I was quite disappointed by, and it goes back to the points that Danielle was making and Dan was making around prevention, is that I found it quite concerning that the Conservative policy is quite harsh in terms of the increased use of discipline, the increased use of 
of expulsion powers at schools. And it didn't balance that with investment into looking at youth services, looking at alternative and methods of engaging the youths and so on into various other streams. And I think it does feed into health because one of the concerns that people have, obviously, is the increase of knife crime. We've had, with my chambers, a couple of events that we have done for anti-knife crime measures. We've had a surgeon who's come in to tell us that the number of victims of knife crime that he comes across is so high that he now trains army officers in how to suture wounds because he's so advanced in terms of techniques that he's using. So it is a public health issue. And I think it's absolutely fantastic to see that specifically highlighted the public health approach uh, towards knife crime in the Lib Dem and in the Labour manifestos. And I actually found it, I'm going to use the word disturbing, that there wasn't that same level of insight in the Conservative manifesto around that type of issue. I think with the Conservative Party, it talks about investing in terms of putting money into new things in terms of rather than putting money into things that are already existing and working, and working with them and, exactly. and so on. It's just constantly yeah. new buildings, new this, new that. And it's like, actually, look at what's already happening and invest into those because they're just cutting the services. If only we had some youth working. clubs, that would be great. Well, one thing I do have to jump in and say in relation to prevention, especially when it comes to child protection, is the only thing that was specifically mentioned in relation to child protection in the Conservative and Labour manifestos is in relation to the Troubled Families Programme, which apparently, has been running since 2015 and I saw it as a very easy low blow because when I looked into it effectively what the Troubled Families Programme became is the early help scheme within local authorities which is having family support workers trainee um, social workers going into families where they can see with a number of things that have already been raised in terms of housing background education that this is a family at risk of becoming a vulnerable family within the community so therefore they were sending in people doing programmes within local authorities to assist them unfortunately from what I can see 2016 the report that was generated was not as transparent as it should have been and so therefore they were very easy criticised and I think there was a dispatches documentary about it as well and so therefore the Conservatives seem to have said oh no don't worry we're going to fix this and Labour's come in and said don't worry we're going to change it totally but the reality is there is some but it seems to be this one programme and I'm still trying to understand what they're doing sorry there is some intention of continued work from the Conservatives and attention from the Labour um, Party to work on early um, intervention from the child protection view and literally from the local authorities and actually sending people out so there is something out there. The most recent evaluation of it is, is actually working. Slightly concerned about the um, control group, if anything. But when comparing families that had the early intervention and families that didn't, there is a difference in the number of children that are currently looked after on a child protection. Apparently there is actually something that is happening at the moment. But the concern is that's it in the manifest- manifestos. There's a lot of fluff, a lot of air. Conservative says we're going to fix the troubled programmes. Labour says, oh no, 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 we're going to completely change it because the Conservatives got it wrong. And then that was it. Lib Debs don't mention it. Lib Debs what I was able to pull out what Lib Dems are saying and I say pull out because I think I took things that I agreed were things that would benefit children and so I I noted as has already been mentioned that that they intend to pull the um, funds between public health and social health care and Macy and also pull the working between the different departments because I do agree we all need to work together and it doesn't make sense to have everything separate and also they intend to invest one billion a year in children's centres to support families and tackle inequalities in children's health development and life chances and that was for me scrolling
scrolling through in the different subject headings to find something that I thought was actually relevant to um, actually assisting with child protection. But as I said, I had to pull it out. I had to scroll through. I had to actually research other bits and pieces that I wasn't aware of. And then unsurprisingly this morning, over 140 children's organisations wrote a open letter to political leaders asking them to address and put out solutions to the social problems that can leave millions of children scarred for life, including poverty, mental health, domestic abuse and various and serious youth violence. And in their open letter, I'm just going to do the three things that they're asking for, because that is what 140 different children's organisations said is not their basic. Set out party priorities for vulnerable children, put children at the front of the queue for investment and rebalance the spending. That's all we're asking for. And can I just say, I find it really interesting that you hadn't heard of the Troubled Families programme, bearing in mind that you were called to the bar in 2012. And that you, so you spent this past seven years working in child protection. And this is the first time that you've come across that programme. As I said, I'm hoping it's simply because it's been rebranded in every single local authority and I know it generally is early help. Early help, early intervention, front door services, that sort of thing. Because I'm still trying to pull together whether or not, from what I understand, it's in local authorities as opposed to external services. But then I've learned so much today about the amount of services that were commissioned out to other to be bodies. fair, rebranding the Troubled Families Programme is probably a very good idea. Yes, yeah. given the name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We've obviously come to the end of our time for this particular episode. Um, I understand for listeners who are tuning in that perhaps we haven't covered absolutely everything that we could have but you'll appreciate this is a huge area for us to go over social care covers a range of things including caring for the elderly not just the youths but I wanted to make sure that the guests that we have on the show speak about the areas that they know very well can you guys just go around and just say to us which of the manifestos you found the most persuasive in your particular area I guess for mine I would say the labour manifesto I, I just agree with it more i have to say none of them because i don't feel they address the issues or any of the issues and um, with any depth so i can't support any of them i would say i'm between labor and lib dem in terms of their approach to social care i like the fact they use an intersectional approach to the area and in particular they both make specific reference to the level of inequality that you have and the impact that it has on people from black asian and ethnic minority backgrounds as well my name is Zainab and I would agree with that. I think it, it's a good draw between the Liberal Democrats and with Labour because I think specifically in Parliament we've heard a lot, a lot of the policy questions we've been getting have been centred around mental health and those are the two parties that really talk about it but also just approaching health from a more kind of well-rounded perspective actually, especially specifically around housing and how it affects health. That is a big thing in our constituency and it's something that I think the general public are interested in. It's very difficult to say. I think that overall, as I said, Brexit is going to dominate what we can and cannot do about health. None of them mentioned Brexit in the manifesto. So for me, I mean, none of them really I could overly support. There are good things in all of them. The Tory manifesto, NHS visa I like. I like the fact that Labour manifesto does talk about, you know, mental health a little bit more and also talks about child, you know, health inequalities and also children. But overall, if Brexit's not mentioned, it's just not realistic for me. For me, especially from a population health point of view, I'm going to have to say the Labour manifesto. Of all the three manifestos, it's the one that seemed to take uh, health most holistically. In particular, although we didn't mention it, it's the only one that really talks about social care outside of looking after older people, which I think is really important. But also, uh, again, links things like housing, education, etc. to health, which is incredibly important. Liberal Democrats, on the basis that I think it is reform that is necessary and they have a health and all approach a well-being strategy and I moreover I think it's achievable reform without throwing the baby out with the bathwater the things that need fixing need fixing quickly we don't need rampant top-down reorganization again
So guys, thank you so much for tuning in today. I'm sure you'll agree with me that it was so educational. A lot of learning on that episode for me. I agree with that. And make sure that you guys follow us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us by typing in The Manifesto Read. Subscribe to the podcast, rate and review us. Please, we need the likes. Like us. <laughs> you can't do that every time.